I think you should start with your own personality and really understand yourself and your strengths and weaknesses and just what are you drawn to and what do you avoid? Because in this game, when there's only a couple people and you don't have a lot of like structured accountability, you can really go off the rails if you don't um, pay very close attention to the stuff that you know you're gonna avoid. So it's like driving down the road, you know there's gonna be potholes, why not plan to avoid them? Like just see them ahead of time instead of bouncing your car through those. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's uh, grown several businesses and seven and eight figure, uh, or several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another guest, a great guest on the podcast, Anne Gibbon. And uh, just as a quick introduction to Anne, so she uh, got started as an entrepreneur after kind of watching her dad be an entrepreneur growing up and do his own small businesses. As an example, in high school, I think he refinanced uh, refinanced the property, tore it down, rebuilt it, and she kind of got the idea that the uh, buck stopped here or buck stopped with uh, with him. Um, and then uh, dad always also wanted to always go in the military, but never quite ma- wasn't able to. So Anne decided to go into the military, did Naval Academy, found out she wasn't as great about taking orders or being told what to do, but did stick with it, I think, for 10 or 10 or so years. Grateful for what she learned. And I think you were also, just as a side note, a boxer in the military and even won some prizes. And we'll touch uh, shortly on that. Um, but then kind of got to the end of that, uh, went to design school for a year, enjoyed creativity, doing things new. I um, did a whole bunch of design projects. I think went to New Zealand or was in New Zealand for a period of time and then came back to Washington and then decided to create her own thing, which kind of brings her uh, brings her to where she's at today. So with that much as a, as a introduction, welcome on the podcast, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So completely random question, but do people ever get confused between Anne or Annie because it's A-N-N-E and I'm never quite sure if I was supposed to say Anne or Annie. No, Anne's perfect. And um, I, I've stopped doing it, I guess, for a decade or so now, but I used to love introducing myself um, as Anne with an E, like Anne of Green Gables. So. <laughs> well, my wife would appreciate that. That's one of her shows that she loved watching there growing up. So uh, that's funny. Well, perfect. Well, I gave a quick introduction to you and uh, a little bit about your journey, but now let's go back in time a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your dad watching him do be an entrepreneur growing up and let's uh, hear about your journey. Yeah. Um, my dad was kind of fell into it in a way. Um, his dad was in the Navy in Pearl Harbor um, and during World War II and then mm-hmm. the Army um, for a career. And so when he got out, uh, my grandfather bought a gas station and my dad was made to work there from the age of 12, like every day after school and every summer. So um, when he was 23, he bought his own gas station kind of on the Mm. same corner. And uh, so it was almost default, like he didn't really think about it. Um, But watching him growing up, he, you know, brought us as kids to meetings, like 401k, um, explaining that. And he freaking loved to give advice. So he was always telling us about, um, Hey, this is what happened with the business. And like, this is what I did with my employees Mm. and my bedroom sleeping in our old house, um, growing up was next to my parents. So I could hear through the walls. So when, 
you know, somebody from work would call at night, like at two in the morning, I'd hear it and kind of wake up and, and hear my parents talk about it. Um, mm. So if there was, you know, an accident, because he had uh, some tow drivers too. And so if there was an accident or an issue at the store, like it wasn't in the gas station, wasn't in a great part of town. So every so often there'd be a, a break in or, or theft or something. And mm. um, I just got used to seeing somebody manage this weight of like, it's all on me and the, you don't want to do it your whole life, but it takes a specific kind of desire. Cause there's trade-offs, right? Like you're mm. the one, like, I remember I'm talking about if something happened with the tow trucks and they lost their insurance, they'd have to shut down the business. And like, that's, that was it. I remember when my dad bought the property from Arco and built his own new gas station that if, when they were um, replacing the gas tanks with new ones, if they found oil in the ground, the last ones had leaked, he wouldn't be able to build for years, if ever. And that would mm. be the end. And mm. I just was able to experience as a kid, some adults making really hard decisions and taking big risks and deciding mm. this, you know, for our family, it was huge and deciding to swing for the fences. And um, I think it just really lit inside me a fire to want the yoke on my shoulders and want responsibility because I saw the kind of freedom that came with it, but also how you could impact people's lives. Like my dad, one time, um, he had a, a, a gas station service employee who was, I think like 19 and going to be a young father. And, um, he made sure that he found the local community, um, college or the library class on parenting for dads. And they went to it and they pushed him and he talked to him about parenting and, and helped him get excited about it, even though this this kid was young. And remember, he took a trash bag out to his car because it was filled with wrappers and stuff once. It was like, we're not leaving until this car's cleaned up. And he cleaned it up with him. And mm. um, I just, so, so anyway, now you, and, that was a great example of kind of growing up. And I think that's always a cool thing to be able to see a, a bit of an entrepreneurial parent or someone that's, you know, sets that example because it, it sets it up, you know, sets up the, the kids to, to follow in the footsteps. So now as you did that and you had that example growing up, you kind of see what it was like, the buck stops here, see the example. Now, how did you get into doing, going into the Navy and doing boxing? Cause that, you know, that one is a bit of a shift and you mentioned a little bit, that was a bit, even a, a little bit of an example with your dad, but how did you get into to doing that? Yeah, um, well, he was both cheap, and when he redid the gas station, um, he used all of our college money that he'd saved, and I was coming up on college quick, so he thought fast and realized that um, the service academies, West Point, Air Force, Coast Guard, and Navy, um, it's free tuition, right? It's free to him, but uh, he had to, a mandatory service of five years when he graduated, so one, um, when I was in ninth grade, my dad took the family. We grew up in Washington state and we went to the East coast and his only reservations for a two week, like super cheap vacation were football games at the Naval Academy and army West point. Mm. Uh, he was super into the marketing, um, effort then. And I just, I fell in love with the school and the grounds and the energy there, you know, we got to like have lunch with some midshipmen or something. And I just felt like if I went there, I wasn't just going to get an education. They'd also teach me leadership. And it was mm -hmm. something I really wanted to know because I, I loved watching my dad. And I thought, well, how much you know, better could I be if, if I could go somewhere where they teach it? So, and I didn't want a desk job. Like I had no clue in the 90s what careers were out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 
and this is embarrassing. When we went to the Air Force Academy, I thought the only two options were to be a pilot or a chef. No clue why I thought that chef was an option anyway at the Air Force. So I just thought, man, if I go, if I join the Navy, I'm going to have an adventure and turned out that way. So you joined the Navy. Now, how did that, how did you get into box or while you're in the, because I think you did while you're in the Navy, you did boxing, right? So was that a, something that you were interested in and grew up doing, or was it something you learned while you're in the Navy? Cause it just seems like, sounds cool. And I always thought boxing would be fun. I've never done it, but I always thought it sounded or like it would be a fun sport, but how did you, how did you kind of get into that as well? Um, I'd always liked contact sports when I was in high school, I played basketball and fucking loved it. Sorry. I shouldn't swear. I'm a sailor. Um, <laughs> so I fouled out a lot of games. I just really liked contact sports and I kind of liked basketball too. Um, but in college, I rode for three years because uh, around that time, I'm again, really lucky timing wise, but uh, colleges were needing to even out the scholarships they gave women. And so there was a lot of schools recruiting women for rowing. And I'd done that a couple of years as well. And my coach, um, shout out to Kathy Walkley. She was amazing in high school and really kind of nurtured our self-confidence too. And so anyway, so I rode three years in college, um, but my sophomore year, uh, there's mandatory PE classes the whole way through swimming, she could imagine, um, but also uh, grappling and judo and boxing. So sophomore year, I get paired up with another girl my height and um, we only have like two one minute rounds as our test and our the boxing coach for the school is our PE teacher at that point. And I just freaking loved it and went at it. And I think this poor girl was a little afraid. And so after that, the boxing coach was like, you should quit crew and come out and do this. And um, I was like, oh no, I'm happy. Like I like this girl's team. But uh, so my, my, one of my biggest failures in my whole life was not deserving to be elected team captain of my crew team. And it was the only thing I wanted. I quickly got frustrated with the academy and the rules and structure, right? Um, previewed in my later life. And I thought, man, if I can just be captain of this crew team, like I can show that I came here to lead, not to, you know, be an athlete or something. Like I came here really intentionally. And of course I didn't put in the effort. I didn't go to girls' rooms after practice and check on them. I didn't do, I didn't put in the effort I needed to, to show that I was worthy of leading them. And so I didn't get picked and it was Mm. devastating. Um, So then I decided, you know, screw you guys, I'm out. So my senior year, um, the boxing coach had sent a few of his guys to um, like recruit me. Like I'd be doing laundry or something and Mm. it's a coach is telling you to join the team. Anyway, so I joined and I I was the first woman ever to to box for Navy, like on our team. Um, At that point, National Collegiate Boxing, the association, because it's not, I don't think it's even still part of the NCAA. Um, I didn't have women matches. So my coach was also an amateur ref out in town and he found me a fight at a union hall in Baltimore with red solo cups and dancers <laughs> holding the round cards. And I think we were all, one of the only female fights on the card. Mm. Um, but I'm, I am a big girl. I'm a heavyweight boxer, but I move pretty well on my feet. Mm. And um, so my first fight, the first fight for women ever at the Naval Academy, I knocked that girl out in the first round. And it was incredible. <laughs> I loved it. So 
No, that sounds like fun. I I said I always thought never got never have actually done boxing, but it was always one that I thought it looked like it'd be exciting and be fun. And so maybe someday I'm you know I'll still maybe someday I'll still get into it. But yeah. so so you now you do the navy. You you know you, you you do that for a period of time. You kind of find out hey I don't necessarily love to being told what to do and taking orders, but you still stuck with it for quite a while and and you had a good you know career and did, did that for a period of time and also got to do the row, or rowing, got to do boxing and that. And then you get to a point where you say, hey, okay, I've decided I'm going to, you know, leave the Navy or kind of move on into the next phase of your career. Kind of how did you decide what you're going to do next or what was that transition like for you? Um, that's been terrible. So I knew that I wanted to transition out. I've been in for 10 years and there's prescribed career paths for, for people, officers in the Navy. So if you get in as an ensign or whatever, like your first year at 22, they can kind of tell you what your 30 years is going to be like, like here are wickets, you go to ships mm. or a plane, like squadron or shore or whatever. And I just wasn't following the path for my specialty, which was on ships. Mm. So I knew I kind of needed to get out, but I'd submitted my papers, knew that I was leaving in like July of 2013. And then I broke up with my fiance. And then I really had no idea what I was going to do. So I got lucky um, and fell into an opportunity because um, you know, I just kept asking questions and people were nice. And so they said, oh, if you like this, you should try X. And that happened to be the Stanford D school program. And they, um, had at that time, a professional fellowship. So there was 10 of us that year, 10 fellows from all different kinds of organizations. And I worked on an ag tech project on my first year for six months out of the mm -hmm. Navy. No, I think that that's interesting because one of the interesting is, you know, when you kind of tell people or have people say, hey, you'd be good at this and how, you know, hey, have you thought about this? It's a lot of times it's, it's helpful in the sense that it helps you to step back kind of a lot of times people see skills that you're naturally good at, but not that you wouldn't necessarily think of yourself or that you wouldn't necessarily go down that route. So it's interesting that that's kind of how you at least kind of started, got into that and started down that road. So, yeah. so now you go to design school for a period of time, you know, you le learn those skills and you're coming out of that, you know, what did you decide to, or how did you, I think after that you went to New Zealand, is that right? Is that the next step? Yeah. And, um, 2014 was the first time that I, um, met, uh, Maori. So I was um, in the D school, but just finishing up my fellowship and got a opportunity to help with a one day workshop. So um, there are several Maori business leaders in the field of like food and ag tech, and they wanted uh, a design workshop. And I, I got really excited. So I used this concept from Marvel movies of transmedia. Like there's one kind of Avengers story world universe, but they're able to break it down in these um, silo stories like Thor and Iron Man, but they exist on their own. Like you can just watch those and you don't need to watch the whole thing. But if you do, it, there's these consistent elements. And that was similar to Maori um, tribes, Iwi, where mm -hmm. they had really um, distinct tribal identities and they wanted to preserve those in the products when they exported. But um, they also wanted to have an overarching like Avengers-like-ish, um, but like Maori brand so that you could have the umbrella and the individual identities. And they liked it and came back um, several months later. So I did some consulting in New Zealand for a few weeks in 2015. Mm. And then when I was there, they asked me if I'd like to move there. And um, so I said, yes, because <laughs> like, when you get that opportunity, like let's go, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> 
So now, so you did that, you did, you know, and I think you mentioned, you know, you did a bunch of different design pro- or projects for a few different businesses while you were there in New Zealand and working with the tribes and that as well. Now, you know, after you did that for a period of time, what made you decide to kind of leave New Zealand and come back to Washington and start your own thing? Um, I, it was the greatest privilege in my life to be brought into different iwi because they, you know, let me spend time with their kids. We did design workshops for um, high school kids. They showed me their their stories and their history. And there's obviously a lot of pain around kind of the colonial legacy for indigenous people, but also so much pride. There's so many stories and traditions, um, but especially the thing that got me to move away was that I saw all these leaders in Maori culture not just having a job and working their butt off, but also spending a lot of time with their community. And they just gave so much of themselves because it was their cultural tradition and responsibility to do. And it brought so much joy and connection back. So this sense of having actually having a relationship and a guardianship role for your environment, the place you're from. And it's not just kind of there out of your mind, but you, interact with that stream, that river, that mountain, it's your place and there's stories from your ancestors 20 generations back from there. Mm. Um, and also the, the tapestry of being connected with your community um, and being and showing up for people, whether it's just, you know, like at a funeral or it's um, kind of a cultural ritual, like weekend experience um, that you help put on for, for kids and pass the stories down. So anyway, I, I saw them invested in this tapestry of their lives. And I felt like I was an outsider. And then as a consultant, like taking money from that. And I wanted to go home and try to understand what that connection would be like to the place I grew up and spend more time with my family. So. So, so now you said, okay. And I think that that definitely makes sense. And I'm a big proponent of family and wanting to be back with family and, to, and have that experience. So you said, okay, I'm going to move to Eric, move back from New Zealand, come to Washington, you know, learned a lot of great lessons, had a lot of great experience in New Zealand. And you said, now I want to be back by family and, and, you know, have that experience. So you come back to Washington and how did you kind of land on doing your own thing and how did that go? And what was yeah. it worthwhile and kind of what, uh, how did you get or get into that phase? Yeah. Well, Man, if there's uh, anybody listening who does not know what they're doing with their life, that was me until a couple of years ago. Hmm. Um, I was in my late 30s and trying to piece together, like, what is this career? You know, I was on ships and I did these different things in the Navy and then I was doing design stuff. And then in New Zealand, like, where in the heck does this all lead? And like, how am I going to have a retirement? Right. And what do I want to do with my life? So I had narrowed it down like, man, I really love emerging technology futures. I want to be part of something where we're watching the future and then actually building tools or a service that people use to to bring themselves into that future. I realized I I love leadership and I want to be responsible for a team again. Um, And I liked, I like small, fast teams. So it was like, okay, probably a startup, probably tech. um, And I have a you know thread like of leadership and decision making and from my work in the Navy um, and then with Maori, I got exposed to like the lack of software tools to help people 
make better decisions and specifically to look at their data and to look at their data with other people. And I had met, um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, okay, I'm going to look for something in like neuroscience, neurotech or decision-making or something. Mm. And, um, when I got back to the States, one of my friends um, asked me to come down to San Diego because a couple other people were going to meet at his house to do some research. And when I was there, we were talking and he's like, well, the timing works out for both of us. Like, why don't we just start a company? So, um, sorry, it's my 40th birthday. And although I turned my phone off, my other computer is my cousin. <laughs> wishing me well it's, it's, it's a uh, bit of having all of your electronics come or interlinked together is that they never will leave you alone no matter how hard you try no and i just like i want to push this off the thing so um i oh, by the way happy birthday that's a, that's a great milestone so just as a complete side note but happy birthday thanks it's um it's good to be 40 really good i didn't know <laughs> when i was 25 how good it would be um so my friend um he had developed this concept for data visualization. So that's where we get into the startup finally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I met him back in 2012 and this is 2018. And I'd always been kind of obsessed with it. I'm like, this is brilliant. Like it, it's an open source tool in beta. It had been funded by the Intel community for the, like its first iteration, um, but they'd struggled to gain any kind of traction. There wasn't like a company around it. They'd gotten a few research contracts mm-hmm. and it's, it's really hard to use um, right now, because it's not developed, um, it's not a product yet, and somewhat complicated because it allows for dozens of parameters of data to be shown in one scene. So um, my now co-founder Dave was like, "Well, let's do something together." Like you're, he used to be enlisted before he got his MD and a PhD in neuroscience. So he's a genius, and he likes giving me shit for being an officer and writing memos. So he's like, "You can write memos, you can plan, you can be the officer." Um, and I don't have to do that. And eventually like we can make money and I can have a, a research lab and stuff. So for the last couple of years, we've been working on this company together. Mm. Well, that's, and that's cool. So, um, so now that you're building the company, you're, you're, you know, getting that experience and, uh, going, you know, getting, or getting that phase of your life that you've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, you get the opportunity, you get the chance, you know, how did that go? Was it exciting? And it was a great experience. Was it tough and difficult? Was yeah. it, you know, getting all of the above or kind of how did that go for you? Yeah. Um, it's definitely all of the above. I mean, it's been a pandemic, so I have not like done my makeup maybe more than like five days in the past year. Um, and so those moments you think, well, I have an ambition to have a multi-billion dollar company and have a huge team. And right now it's me and another two people and I'm sitting in sweats in my house for months on end, like going really slow. Mm. Um, And so I found that the time that I took not to do something practical to move the company forward, but when I took it to reinforce the story in my head of how this would evolve, and sometimes that was watching other founders who'd been at it for 10 years. And they're like, yeah, in the beginning, it was re- like, it looked like this. It looked like this for a long time. And then it went you know, up. Um, that was really helpful. Or it was just telling our own story. Like we know what we want to do and kind of going back to the fundamentals of why we started the business and the, the core innovation. Um, but one of the things uh, that I regret, like probably my worst business decision was um, not spending our first funding 
wisely. So we got an R&D contract from the military uh, in 2019 and we had six months of funding and a couple hundred thousand dollars. And my, my co-founder was like, all right, you run with it. You're the project manager. And I just flubbed how we used the money. Like we did something in the end, but the biggest failure point there was um, instead of developing our core software, I listened to other people um, because I didn't, I don't really understand technology that well. I definitely didn't when we started, mm. I got other core skills. Um, so I'm learning. So, you know, two years ago, I was kind of intimidated and we had like hired some consultants or a developer to help us. And they're like, oh, this software is terrible. Like nobody's going to use it. Talking about ours. You, you, okay. I get that you're doing 3d objects. You need to use blender. So we're let's design in blender. And I just went with that instead of sticking to my guns of, um, yes, this is early days, but the most important thing is product market fit, understanding our customer and an MVP, mm. not um, getting uncomfortable with how ugly the baby looks and trying something else. So it turned out, of course, that Blender didn't work for what we wanted. The development didn't go fast enough. So we mm. barely got a little bit of a product done by the end of the research contract, but it wasn't what we'd anticipated because we didn't know the development times for that software. Um, mm. So it was, it was not embracing, like my big takeaway was I didn't embrace the ugly baby and the place that we were at. Like we just, we weren't ready to have a nicer tool. We were ready to only stay with the software that we had with the little functionality it had, hard as it is to use, but to really understand it um, and understand potential customers. No, no and I, but you know, it, it's it's one where you look back and you see, you know, there, there are mistakes to be made, but you know, it's also one that I think that it's an easy one to make in the sense that, you know, figuring out what the product is, what that fit is, who the customer is, what the minimally viable product or what is the first product you can put out. All of those are ones you always hear about, but when you get into it, it's never that easy net to navigate. But it sounds like after, you know, for a period of time, it was kind of figuring that out, working back and forth. And that kind of brings us up to where you're at today, where you guys are still at it. You've, you know, figured out a bit more of that fit and who the customer is and where that placement is. Yeah. So, so now as we, and always more things to talk about than time to, or time to talk about it, but we're getting towards the end of the podcast. So I think that's a good uh, transition talking about your journey to hit on the last couple of questions I always ask at the end of each podcast, which is the first one I always ask is, so along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Um, Wasting that money was the worst decision because my co-founder and I were like, oh my God, like, can you imagine how much development we could have done on our core product if we had just stuck to our guns? Mm -hmm. um, so it feels a lot like a waste, but that's, it's okay. So, um, because I learned the hard way that there's no standard startup timeline. Like what you're doing is theoretically unique. That's why it's a startup. Um, so it's going to, take the time that it takes to get to a point where you feel like, oh yeah, we've got traction. Like we've got customers that like this and like, people understand it or we're, we're moving on. So I actually just slowed way down during the pandemic and I learned to code last year myself. I, I learned Python and created a bunch of demos and used our tool. So um, like I didn't really do a ton of customer research at all. I just made myself the customer and made a ton of visualizations with it. So then I knew that I know my tool better than 
way better than I did a year ago. So no, and I think that that's that's a good lesson to learn, and certainly a good mistake to learn, or at least a mistake to learn from. So. Now, as we jump to the the second question, which is if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? That it's very similar to, you know, leadership at large, but um, I think I, so I used to, I ended up teaching leadership at the Naval Academy for a few years. And I always thought that instead of teaching theory and here are like the kind of the great men to look at. Mm. Um, whether it's in business or the military, I think you should start with your own personality and really understand yourself and your strengths and weaknesses and just what are you drawn to and what do you avoid? Because in this game, when there's only a couple people and you don't have a lot of like structured accountability, you can really go off the rails if you don't um, pay very close attention to the stuff that you know you're going to avoid. So it's like, Driving down the road, you know there's going to be potholes. Why not plan to avoid them? Like, just see them ahead of time instead of bouncing your car through those. So, um, for me, I really like strategy and foresight thinking, but it was the um, getting really tactical and just down to the nitty gritty details with understanding clients, and then not even being spread out with that. Like picking one market and diving in to find one particular use case to start with and that feels like you're leaving so much on the table and that's like startup advice that I hear everywhere and then I think like well that's not new like well it's just because everybody finds it challenging to do so um my path into that insight what I needed was pay attention to your personality and plan that your weaknesses are gonna derail you if you don't have kind of the if you didn't put in the prep time to watch for the problems ahead. No, and I think that's definitely great advice and something that uh, people can uh, take to heart as, as they're doing a startup or small business. Well, as we wrap up, and it, you know, for, uh, just as a reminder for everybody that's listening, we are going to do the bonus question where we talk a little bit about intellectual property and your top question there. So uh, a reminder for everybody to stay tuned. But uh, if they are going to tune out before they do, um, if they want to find out more, they want to be a client, they want to be a customer, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out or find out more? Uh, so our company is called Matri Design. And um, I came up with that name when I got out of the Navy. My CP mm. was like, just give me something. We can change the paperwork later. And I was going into a restaurant and just thought, I'm fucking sick of the patriarchy. Let's call it the matriarchy, matri. So matri design mm. is our company. So that's on LinkedIn and website, like www.matridesign.com. And mm. um, like, then you'll find like Twitter and that stuff too. But our software is open source, so anybody can download it and try it. Um, and that's on GitHub, and the software itself is called Open Ants. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to check it out, be a supporter, be a user, and uh, especially open source so they can use it and build onto it and find out more about it. Well, thank you for coming on as we wrap up the normal portion of the episode. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Apply to be on the podcast. We'd love to hear your journey. Um, also, if, if you're listening, make sure to click subscribe so you get uh, in your podcast player so you get notifications as all the new episodes come out. And uh, leave us a review so new people can find us. 
Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents or trademarks or anything else for your business, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time to chat with us. So now with that, as we wrapped up the normal portion of the episode, it's now the time to we flip it a bit. And I always get asked the questions during the normal portion. Um, and so it, I always get the easier, I always say the easier job. And now you get to flip the question a bit with the bonus question. You get asked, so what is your top intellectual property question that I can answer for you? So it's around open source. We think that we want a business model where the company, the main company that gets invested in holds the core IP for the graphics visualization engine. And then we imagine um, potentially creating other separate corporate entities that would have a license for that and maybe some co-ownership of shares. And that other entity would actually build um, a proprietary function set of functionality and database integrations on top. So this um, concept of holding core open source IP in one company, but have but within like the same group of people, separating out the um, kind of licensing rights for mm. whether it's geography or markets or something um, into separate companies. Do you have any thoughts on? managing that complicated space no i think it's a it's a fair question i've and as a as a side note and i'll, I'll certainly get to answer your question where I, mean, I do i run a few different companies or right? i'm certainly involved with a few different companies and so what i did is you know we i i created what would be a, a parent company or almost a holding company within within each one of the companies could be uh, owned by that parent company. So it kind of at least or lets them be siloed, lets them be um, separate and manage their own budgets and have their own expenses, different taxes. And yet all the, by the same token, I am able to hold my own ownership in each of them such that it doesn't become complicated with too much of an ownership structure. So that's kind of maybe a bit of a side note, but you know, the, the question is, and I think, and I think if I were to put it is, you know, you're looking at licensing, you're having opportunities to do different different things with different portions of the, the company. And so whenever you look at licensing and how you're going to do it, it, I think that the first step you guys have taken is right in the sense that you can do it a couple ways when you get into licensing and you have different aspects. One is you can do it based on intellectual property. So generally a patent that you could say, okay, for each patent, we're going to do a different, we're going to split up the different technologies for different patents. And so we're going to say, Hey, this technology is uh, for this patent is going to go for this. And I can license that separately than a different patent. And so that would be one thing that you could set up. If you're just saying, Hey, we have really different areas that we want to license. We want to keep it all in the same company. That would be one avenue. The other one is what you guys set up, but I think is a, an interesting and it can be a good structure is we're looking and saying, Hey, we really got almost different areas of a company or different things that each or different things that each portion is doing such that we either want to license it. And it also lends itself well to if you're ever to do a merger or an acquisition, be bought out or otherwise partner up that you're saying, Hey, now we've siloed it out such that yes, we are looking to license or merger or acquisition or whatever for this, or this avenue and this aspect but we then it, it, you don't intermingle everything else. So it makes it a clearer or an easier conversation. So I don't know that I have a ton of feedback other than that, other than I think that there's, there's good aspects of doing it. Now, the only thing you ever have to watch out for is if you really have one company that you're trying to run as three companies, it can get a bit complicated as to how you run the budgets, how you move the money back and forth, how you, you know, are able to show a unified front to the, to the customers or to the individuals while, you know, running it on the back end with multiple companies. So that's a, a little bit more on the 
taxes, pay or expenses, and also f- or outward facing things that you always have to figure out or just make sure you account for. They can get a bit more complex, but it does have a lot of advantages to it. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, with that, there's your there's a the, your top intellectual property question. That was a good question and uh, a fun to fun to chat about. So um, with that, we'll wrap up the podcast. And I want to once again thank you, Anne, for coming on the podcast. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.